Hi, and welcome to Nation State of Play. I'm your host, Brian Miller. On each episode of this podcast, we explore high-impact topics determining the future of our nation state. Our guest today is Jennifer Hernandez with The 200, an advocacy group that focuses on closing the wealth gap through home ownership. California had a housing crisis before COVID, and that crisis has deeply accelerated since the pandemic began. I hope you'll listen to this important discussion about the causes of the housing crisis and what we can do to change it. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate the time. Lovely to be here, Brian. Great. Well, could you tell us a little bit about the 200 and what your organization focuses on? The 200 is a project of California community builders, um, and uh, CCB was formed by John Gamboa and uh, uh, Robert Apodaca, among others, um, who have a a stunning history uh, as civil rights leaders uh, in California um, uh, and co-founded organizations like uh, the Greenlining Institute and uh, Latino Issues Forum um, that have really champions civil rights over the course of many, many decades now. Um, The 200 also draws from a large group of very, um, I think, diverse leaders, um, uh, including folks like uh, Herman Gallegos, who co-founded La Raza nationally and has long been on various foundation boards, Um, uh, uh, ex-pro-tem Don Parada, um, ex-cabinet secretary, uh, Sonny McPeak, um, and uh, uh, just a huge and wonderful group of regional leaders um, uh, in especially the civil rights and housing uh, space. Um, and really the focus of the group is on the restoration of home ownership. Home ownership has been really systematically um, denied uh, to um, the country and the states Uh, minority populations um, uh, for many decades. Uh, And unfortunately, um, the home ownership gap uh, got worse uh, over the Great uh, Recession. Um, And uh, it's now um, uh, rapidly getting worse again with COVID. So um, home ownership is about housing. Um, Housing is uh, uh, almost like water anymore. It's it's fighting words, you know, you you fight over water, you kill over water, you fight and you kill apparently over housing. It's really an unfortunate um, uh, trend in California politics, although there's been a tremendous amount of recognition of late uh, and uh, willingness to really engage in the hard issues of solving the housing crisis. Um, and uh, I think the challenge uh, that the 200 in particular is focused on is the home ownership challenge um, and, uh, and running into just incredible prejudice uh, um, still uh, by people who consider themselves woke progressives, um, uh, infamously like Mary Nichols at the California Air Resources Board, who explained uh, to these uh, civil rights uh, champions um, that, uh, um, you know, CARB is sympathetic to the need for affordable housing for, quote, their community, um, uh, in addition to installing, like, charging stations or something. And uh, and one of the leaders of the 200 responded that, for her, affordable housing means rental housing for poor people. Um, and while those are important, it's also traditionally considered sort of the projects and um, the 200 is dedicated to making sure that uh, uh, you know people have opportunities for home ownership not just quote the projects um, and I think that's an important 
and fundamental difference of the 200 in the housing space. Um, of course, the 200 supports affordable housing, um, uh, including for people at the absolute lowest and most needy um, end of our uh, uh, economic spectrum. Um, but focusing on that end does not give anyone an excuse to ignore the needs of middle-income Californians, hardworking Californians, two, three jobs per household Californians um, who've been priced out of home ownership and really priced out even of proximate rental ownership by this chronic multi-decade housing crisis. So what is the 200 specifically a reference to? Um, so uh, um, uh, when uh, John and, uh, and Robert and uh, Joe Cotto, former assemblyman, started the group, um, they signed up their fellow veteran civil rights leaders, and uh, uh, and there were about 100 of them to start with, and then it was quickly 200, and then it became out of control to kind of continue to change the number, um, so they just set on 200, um, and uh, of course now there's, uh, um, you know, there's there's thousands. Uh, okay, folks. so it can go by the thousands and go by 200s, but I, but I got it. Made, made sense at the time. Um, no. <laughs> so, um, and, and let me make sure that listeners understand the difference between the 200 and the California community builders. Who are the California community builders specifically? So California Community Builders uh, is the same gentleman, um, uh, Robert and, uh, uh, and John um, uh, is, are the key kind of founding members. And what happened at the Greenlining Institute, which was set up to fight redlining in all of its forms, um, not just housing, but also insurance and banking, all kinds of issues associated with redlining fought by the Greenlining Institute, housing became more and more of an issue. And as John Gamboa tells the story, um, he was like, so how come it's so hard to do housing? Let's just try one. And so CCB was started to try and actually succeed at building an affordable home ownership townhome project in Atwater, California, which is a very, very uh, uh, poor uh, community in the Central Valley. And uh, they experienced um, just how challenging it is to build um, homes. Uh, and it was ridiculous. Um, and it's the only project that CCB ever built. Um, uh, and, is, and CCB is no longer trying to build home ownership products. But having tried it and seen how difficult, it really just reinforced the need to take a much more systematic approach to changing the way we deliver housing in California. Because you just can't do this hand-to-hand -hand combat over every issue for every project and expect to actually produce housing in either quantity or in anything like a reasonable amount of time or for a reasonable amount of money. So um, CCB was the housing learning project gotcha. um, and uh, the 200 was the advocacy effort that came out of that experience. And now the advocacy effort is, is sort of assumed California community builders in some ways. Got it, that's a great helpful background. Um, I'm so interested in the politics of this issue because, you know, as a, as a student of politics, as a practitioner of politics, I feel like the politics on this issue are just all over the map and create some really strange totally. Um and, and you've alluded to it a little bit. To try to unpack this for listeners, why don't we start, though, with your views of kind of the origins of the housing crisis, particularly in California? What, what has created it? What makes California worse than other states? Yeah, so I have uh, done, as you uh, I'm sure know and, and your listeners know, a ton of work on the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, I just want to start by saying 
In 49 states, <laughs> what happens in the world of housing is there are huge fights often about zoning, about what should go where, what kind of you know, housing product or, or retail or whatever. And people who care a lot about their community have these big fights over zoning, general plan kind of policy documents. But once those are approved, unless they're changed by the electeds, the actual projects, the housing, as long as it complies with the rules, it just gets built. It's simply done. Once the rule book is set, housing that complies with the rule gets built. In California, in uh, about 19, I think, 82, um, there was a court case interpreting the California Environmental Quality Act as applying for the first time to housing that got built entirely consistent with the rule book. So even if it complied with zoning, complied with the general plan, um, a court decided that, yeah, but cities could make decisions about where the driveway was or what color the windows were. And those are discretionary decisions. Discretionary decisions are subject to CEQA. And once that started, once that 1982 Pandora's box got open to apply CEQA to even remodeling of existing single family homes, which is pretty amazing. There's no floor below which CEQA doesn't apply. Um, then uh, really we were off to the races with hand-to-hand -hand combat over every single housing project. There's never been a successful effort to constrain the amount of time or money that can be spent on CEQA. So that's kind of limitless in the first place. Anybody can sue, even anonymously, uh, to challenge whatever they want uh, under CEQA. So that sort of unleashed all kinds of forces. It became much more expensive to even try to get approvals to build housing, which then limited the number of people, companies that were willing to even try. It completely wiped out most of the middle and smaller market builders. Um, it also made it really risky because you could buy land and you could follow every rule. And at the end of the day, you could be denied if there was a significant temporary increase in noise construction. Um, and that was enough to, to kill the project. So it was highly speculative money. And that of course is much more expensive money. Um, at the same time with Prop 13, the frustration uh, around how to finance municipal services and infrastructure grew higher and higher at local agency levels because the state, through periodic recessions, took more and more money away from um, locals and the voters had frozen Prop 13 uh, uh, property taxes. So locals got more and more behind in being able to provide services and pay for them. Um, and so started adding uh, uh, mitigation costs to um, housing projects, either inside the, um, you know, the, the realm of CEQA. <laughs> Famously, there's like impacts to a library is an environmental impact under CEQA now, really, because someone wanted money for, you know, to help the library system. Um, anyway, um, uh, there became just this kind of Christmas tree effect of having new housing, not just pay for its own needs, but also pay for existing needs in the community um, uh, under the guise uh, in, in large part of uh, uh, addressing a quote, environmental impact. And then I think the final thing that I would say is our willingness to accept 
new neighbors dropped dramatically as the baby boomers aged. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, it was never really easy to move new housing into especially wealthier communities. And of course we have, you know, century uh, or decades rather of legacy um, exclusionary single family zoning, exclusionary racial covenants, which while no longer um, enforced um, or enforceable, uh, did put a stamp of color on many neighborhoods. Um, but once we, once it became politically acceptable to say, oh, I'd, f- I'd be fine with, quote, those people moving into my neighborhood, but I don't want the environmental impact associated with the change to my private view or I don't want it to be harder to find a parking space in front of my house, or I don't want it to be the case that, you know, a new family might want to use my park or a new kid might enter, you know, enter my school. Once we turn CEQA into um, this really multi-pronged weapon where any change is presumptively an adverse impact to the environment, and the question is how many uh, adverse impacts can you tally up? Um, then it became politically acceptable in a liberal and a democratic world to say, I mean, I'm not against housing. I just need to protect the environment where the environment became more and more about the view out your own bathroom window. Right. Uh, Great description of the history. Uh, So is California really the only state that interprets our environmental quality act to that extreme? Yes. It's the only uh, state that uh, applies uh, its version of, of CEQA, which is based on the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, to such min- minutia as remodeling of, of homes uh, uh, or building a new home on an illegal single family lot in, the, in a neighborhood. So we apply it to everything. Um, and, uh, and we're the absolute only state that allows anyone to sue anonymously for any reason. And the actual lawsuits have been about 200 a year, um, but the threatened lawsuits are way more than that, much harder to quantify, obviously. And just the specter of having to go through, you know, run that gauntlet um, really has meant the question being, look, is anybody with money um, uh, going to want to stop this project? Because if so, then, you know, our cost just went up. Uh, you know, sometimes by a million dollars or more to do an EIR and, and have to defend a lawsuit for three, three four, five years um, for what, in my judgment, is a pretty benign and even beneficial um, use of our urban land, which is to accommodate people. You know, when we have people here, we have lower greenhouse gas per capita. When we have people in existing communities, we don't actually have to drive as far. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for the environment that we should support housing um, uh, and not just for the environment. I think we have pretty good uh, range of, you know, of quality of life issues uh, if you can afford now to, to live here. Um, but we have made it plenty possible to say new housing harms my environment. Um, you know, if, if, if George Wallace had a tool available to him in, uh, uh, in the South that said, you know, adding a new kid to a school or adding a new family to a public park was somehow adverse and you could kind of get away in, you know, polite society and saying, well, I mean, I support those people. I just don't want them to impact my school or my park. 
Um, if that was a tool available to Governor Wallace, he would have used it and we would have been all over him because it's absolutely discriminatory. Um, but instead, uh, you know, we, we cloak ourselves in this environmental um, uh, faux progressivism and uh, it's really all about uh, uh, selfish enemies. So, so one of the things I find really hard to understand about the politics is, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area, I live in a notoriously anti-housing town called Lafayette, and we have a lot of big <laughs> fights here. And, but if you listen to our state legislative delegation in the whole Bay Area, almost to a person, they sound pro-housing. Um, they, 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 I think they tend to support some of the bills that you're talking about. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But it's almost always part of what they're talking about on the stump as opposed to the municipal politicians who represent the very same areas and who essentially can only get elected if they're anti-new housing. And what I find sort of fascinating about that is these are politicians literally representing the same constituents, but yet they're coming out on a different side of this politically. First of all, do you agree with that description or am I getting it too, too general? And um, let, let me start there. Is that, is that a fair description? Yeah, so I think I'd add two things to that description. One is it's changing. What used to happen is you had locally elected officials win a seat in the assembly or the Senate. And most local issues they left behind in their district. They weren't involved in land use battles over some neighborhood apartment house once they moved to Sacramento. So they were um, the same people with the same kind of voter um, uh, uh, exposure uh, when they were in local government, but that voter exposure reduced when they moved to Sacramento because voters perceived Sacramento as dealing with stuff other than uh, whether to allow an apartment building. Now that there are some legislators who are squarely in the public eye as being supportive of housing, even when local communities may not want it, um, then, uh, you know, we now have uh, active uh, opposition to those uh, electives in Sacramento over that issue of local control. Um, so, um, and I've often told people, some of the most ardent and, and strongest housing advocates in Sacramento, uh, you know, there is no one size fits all to a state as diverse as California. So if you try to impose some San Francisco solution it won't even work in East Contra Costa, where I grew up, let alone in Southern California or the Inland Empire, or the desert or the mountains. Um, and so I say, start in your backyard. If you want to start, you know, imposing some state mandate, then impose it in your region or your city first. And that gets right back into the NIMBY world. Um, so, um, and I don't want to kind of completely dismiss NIMBYs. Everybody wants to protect the kind of character and quality of life in the community, especially those that they bought into. Um, but that can't mean uh, freezing them in amber. It just can't mean that um, to the exclusion of new people. And there are plenty nice ways, nice in the sense of not monstrosity, um, you know, 19 story buildings plopped in the middle of a single family neighborhood. Um, and that's a myth, by the way, as, as well, because that doesn't happen. But, uh, uh, but I do think you're right that it's more still of a local issue uh, to fight about housing. Um, and it's also true that locals have more financial exposure when their service budget doesn't match the needs of their population and they get criticized for, you know, deteriorated parks or whatever. So. 
But how do you reconcile that political disconnect? It's interesting that um, you see this sort of changing where maybe the legislature is maybe not as, uh, maybe maybe we're saying they're not as pro-housing as they once were, but I, I, I do hear a lot of these, you know, pitches from members that we've got to solve the housing crisis, we've got to solve the housing crisis. Yeah. I hear that certainly from Bay Area members, but yet you would never speak that way as a municipal politician from those same towns and municipalities. So is it that the once you get to Sacramento, you're able to speak about it in a much more general sense that's sort of um, not dangerous to your constituents? Is, is that how you see that playing out? That's exactly right. And uh, and I still think there's much, you know, there's good, strong leadership in uh, both the Assembly and the Senate on housing. But um, for the exact reason you described, um, uh, they can be much stronger generally than they can be if they're running in a district, in a city, that is opposed to, an, you know, converting a church site to an apartment building, and and those kinds of micro um, land use battles is is how we got to the housing crisis we got to, um, uh, and uh, and it's it's going to be brutal to get out of it. So let's let's talk about the solutions. I mean, from everything you've said, my takeaway from that would be CEQA reform would be the most important thing we could do. Is that is that fair? Well, I think it's instructive that, for example, the Senate leadership package of housing production laws each had some form of tweak to CEQA. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, uh, the Senate's uh, uh, or the legislature's uh, released um, uh, kind of economic recovery package proposal uh, of yesterday uh, included CEQA. I mean, it's pretty, pretty hard to ignore CEQA as an issue. Um, the politics of CEQA, of course, are fierce. Um, and I, you know, that is what it is. But in general, yeah, if you need something, you have to set up a rule book for how to get it done. You can't debate it unit by unit, window by unit, by window, parking space by parking space in each community. So um, uh, we should make housing legal. Um, and, uh, and legal means not subject to, um, you know, litigation challenges. Uh, and virtually limitless uh, amounts of time and money spent um, uh, on environmental processing before you can even call the question of allowing a project to happen. Um, uh, the fiscal reform is important. There are solutions to fiscal reform um, that don't require amending Prop 13, uh, like setting up assessment districts, which is very common to um, you know, deal with ongoing maintenance issues and even infrastructure capital needs issues. And housing should pay for itself in terms of its own hardcore needs for piping and streets and stuff like that. Um, but uh, um, the overall, I think, resistance continues to be, uh, you know, life is difficult uh, uh, and I don't want more people near me. Um, and here I think there's another issue which is much more uncomfortable um, to discuss and it's one of the things that the 200 has focused on which is uh, there's no agreement that we should solve the housing crisis that starts from a faulty premise um, there are plenty of people who uh, would welcome um, the departure of all those you know terrible tech jobs and terrible other kind of jobs that have created the housing crisis in their judgment. And once those kind of, you know, job people leave, then we'll be back to normal. Um, and we won't have a housing crisis. Um, uh, 
and fewer people is better anyway. It's better for the planet, it's better for the state, it's certainly better for my commute. Um, so uh, I think it's important to recognize that we do not have consensus around the existence of a housing crisis. We also don't have consensus around what it is. I mean, numerically, I know from California Forward, where I'm on that leadership council, as well as the 200, that the biggest missing housing segment is for working families. Um, there just is no place to buy a home um, that's anywhere, you know, near where you, you know, ideally like it to be, although with remote work that's changing. Um, there just isn't a supply, and that means the pricing is out of control. But there are lots and lots of advocates who believe that all we need is rental affordable projects. Um, and, uh, um, and that's just, it's, it's an unfortunate political dynamic because it should be an all of the above and solution instead of this or solution. You know, I want only, you know, only deed restricted affordable for low income lottery winners is to me not a legitimate housing agenda any more than I want only, you know, market rate single family homes with an extra bedroom for an office um, is not a one size fits all housing solution either. We're really underwater and we need all of the above. So I want to get back to the CARB debate that you referenced before. Um, this is, again, I think another example of sort of fascinating politics here. Um, you guys have been very blunt about CARB. But please give me a little bit of what your concerns are about the the things that they've said, but also the policies that they've pursued. Sure. So um, I, I I believe um, the carb climate policy is affirmatively fraudulent. Um, we uh, uh, contribute, according to CARB's own methodology, less than one percent of anthropomorphic um, greenhouse gas into the atmosphere of the globe. Um, at 1%, even Governor Brown said all of our climate regulatory efforts would be futile unless we persuaded other people to follow our lead. Um, uh, these are not contested statements. They're, they're uh, truths as reported uh, uh, you know, by CARB. Um, so, and we also have the, the biggest housing crisis, um, but we have done a tremendous job at decreasing and greening our infrastructure, especially our power sector, but also fuels um, and fuel economy uh, for uh, uh, transportation sector. So we now have one of the lowest green, per capita greenhouse gas rates in the country. Um, and that's a pretty good thing. You know, when some, when a family moves to Texas because they can't afford housing here, their greenhouse gas uh, 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 almost triples. Uh, Nevada and Arizona almost doubles. Um, and so keeping people in California and allowing them to, to prosper here is a, 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 is a good solution for global climate change. But CARB's metrics, which they've certainly um, uh, been strategic about selecting, um, count people leaving California as reductions of greenhouse gas con consumption in California, and therefore, you know, a departing Californian or a departing California job helps California achieve its greenhouse gas emission reduction uh, um, goal. So it'd be like if instead of conserving water during the drought, I moved my son to Texas and said, aha, we've now conserved water. 
you know, absolutely, our water consumption is down. Our teenage son is no longer living with us. Um, it's but up it's in Texas. Absurd, but, yeah. Exactly. But it's an absurd premise that that's good for the globe, for a global pollutant. That's just really, from my perspective, fraudulent. Um, also, they, they, they know, and there's, I commend to you, um, the, um, what's called the cool calculator on the, on the CARB um, website, that higher income people have higher greenhouse gas carbon profiles. If you own two homes, let me tell you, you've got a lot more GHG going on than if you own half of one. Um, uh, so CARB uh, could have said, from a social equity civil rights perspective, wait a minute, carbon is mostly about consumption and look at these luxury good imports or look at these plane rides. Um, uh, and, you know, these are not core living needs. These are luxuries. Um, and CARB could have said, okay, so we want to do something about that pattern of consumption. We want to put some price points in or whatever um, uh, to the regulatory structure to access um, what I would call affluent carbon. Uh, instead, carbon went right down to the absolute most important things for everyone, really basic stuff like heating and cooling. Our electricity prices have skyrocketed and they've skyrocketed to the greatest harm for those living in hotter environments in the Inland Empire and the Central Valley who need more uh, energy and who don't have as much money. Um, you know, uh, in Berkeley, I can open the window and close the window and take care of almost all my climate needs. Um, uh, that's not true, even in Lafayette, a few, you know, a few miles away. So CARB uh, very consciously chose uh, this brutal approach of attacking those who are least able to avoid those costs. Um, and then it says, oh, but we'll give, you know, we'll figure out how to do a better tax credit or do some kind of low income family exemption or whatever. They never either A, get around to it, or B, set that at a level that makes any difference to working families. It may help those who can't work at all, and I respect that, but it does not help, you know, a two teacher family in Fresno looking at a thousand dollar utility bill uh, to never qualify for low-income um, relief from ever-escalating electricity prices. So they've picked, CARB has picked both a fraudulent metric of allowing people departing California or jobs departing California to not count as greenhouse gas for a global issue. Um, and then they've picked really super regressive policies. I'll end with the housing you know, solution. So notwithstanding the fact that President Obama confirmed that we got rid of 98% of tailpipe emissions from 1990 or 1972 era cars, the Clean Air Act really did clean up the tailpipe pollutants that we were worried about at the time. Carver said, we can't, we cannot rely on, you know, electric cars or zero or near zero um, uh, technology to solve greenhouse gas. We must reduce vehicle miles traveled. Well, vehicle miles traveled is location-based, and the more proximate the locations are, the fewer vehicle miles traveled, but also the more expensive it is. And so the people who drive the longest are those that have to drive the longer distance to get to housing they can afford. So highly regressive to pick the notion of vehicle miles traveled, even by an electric car, 
as a climate imperative and then to attach it to housing. But the other problem with this scheme is the CARB solution is people should live in denser elevator buildings and ride the bus. And even before COVID, with all the issues and challenges that that's raised, that's a form of housing that's five to seven times more expensive to build. It is literally not possible to accommodate working families in that form of housing, even if they were okay with you know, a 700 square foot, two bedroom micro apartment on the 31st floor, that's gonna have a $4,000 plus a month rent in order to just pay for it, right? And no, nobody's making a ton of money on this stuff. So the Bay Area had this scheme to put you know, high rises all over in these downtown transit hubs throughout the region, and they didn't pencil. I'm sorry, you can't you know, build a high rise in Hayward and charge someone $3,500 a month. It's just not the income level that is available to people, and it is the hard cost structure for that kind of housing. Um, so uh, the attachment to housing um, uh, at the highest density and using transit, even pre-COVID, that was you know falling in terms of ridership, especially for Latino workers um, uh, who have to be physically present at the job, not just Latinos, but especially for workers who have to be physically present at a job uh, and don't work in a kind of transit served hub uh, and probably don't work regular nine to five shifts either. I mean, um, transit just doesn't work. We can invent transit that worked and Uber and Lyft kind of did. Uh, we can invent that as a form of public transit and some uh, smaller transit agencies have done just that. Um, but that then results in more rather than less vehicle miles traveled. Um, and CARB selection of vehicle miles traveled was, uh, uh, was aimed at keeping people from owning homes. Obviously, I have a hard time um, thinking there was any other uh, 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 honest uh, metric associated with it. So you're seeking delay now of that implementation of, of the vehicle miles traveled regulation, is that right? Yeah, we've sued to block it, um, uh, and we've gotten uh, delayed because of COVID on, um, uh, you know, getting a hearing. Um, uh, but when the legislature enacted this uh, and told um, the Office of Planning and Research to no longer count traffic congestion as a CEQA impact um, and to come up with something else, it was to facilitate, to smooth, to lessen the cost of that high cost, high density transit oriented housing, which I think by the way is great. But what OPR actually did was apply that same regime statewide, even though something like 3% of the area of Southern California, except San Diego that has most of California's population, like 3% of their land fits that transit oriented neighborhood category. Um, so CARB said, oh, I mean, OPR said, okay, we'll make it easier to build there because you won't have to mitigate for um, traffic congestion. You'll still have to mitigate for traffic safety, which most people are using as a backdoor to mitigate for traffic congestion. But just the act of driving the same, in the same patterns as your neighbor in the other 97% of the, of the territory of CARB, of, the, of uh, Southern California, the act of driving in the same way that your neighbors drive is now an adverse impact that we're not going to allow um, unless you quote mitigate and mitigation is looking like it's coming in at 40, 50, 
$1,000 minimum per door per house um, uh, kind of cost points. Uh, and that's crazy. That'd be like in 1972 telling your parents they could only buy a house if they added what were probably in those dollars closer to $20,000 more to the house price uh, to subsidize transit or to get other people to drive less somewhere else. Um, not, a, not a law that applies to their next door neighbor, only a law that applies to them. And then when you look at that through a racial lens, it's the new people that need housing that also happen to be the browner people. And um, so you, you're back to your sort of, you know, furthering racism in the housing market by continuously loading on all of these um, uh, new mandates. Uh, uh, but especially a new mandate that would keep someone out of home ownership to subsidize something that would get someone else to drive less somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's, that's what this regime is about. And we think it's completely, um, not just unlawful, but immoral. Who was thinking about this? And it's like when climate comes into the, um, uh, into the discussion, everyone just goes, oh, we have to defer to the experts. Well, I'm sorry, the experts bring to the table racism and bias. Uh, and they also don't really, as far as we could tell, have any regard for home ownership or civil rights. Uh, uh, it's just not their lane, you know? Everyone's in their silo and they just wanna stay in their silo. It's not true of everybody, but it's true of leadership. Well, Jennifer, fascinating discussion. I could go on for hours, but um, we, will, we will lose people. So if people wanna find out more about your organization or get involved, where can they go? Sure, so there's a podcast that the 200 has just started called Homing In. Uh, that's homing, H-O-M-I-N-G, in, one word, uh, on all podcast outlets. Um, uh, the Twitter handle is at the 200 leaders, the, the number 200 leaders, at the 200 leaders. And then the website is the200.org. Great. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for being here today. I certainly appreciate all the great work your organization is doing and hope to have you back again um, as, as maybe we get some legislative developments to zero in, but best of luck with the rest of this session. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for uh, uh, doing a great show. Really appreciate your service to the entire state with this show. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Nation State of Play. Our producers are Hannah Miller and Jacqueline Artiaga. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. For more information, click through the link on your podcast app to our homepage.